0: Hello, my name is Sam Clements, and welcome to The Love of Cinema, a picture house podcast proudly supported by Kia, champions of independent cinema. Welcome to this special episode. In cinemas right now, as you're listening to this podcast, unless you're listening in the future, I guess there's always that chance. Uh, but if you're listening to this podcast on release week, there's a brand new film in cinemas called. Moon Age Daydream. It's an incredible documentary, music, film, experimental, cinematic roller coaster ride all about David Bowie's life and music, featuring real life David Bowie tracks, licensed David Bowie tracks. Hearing David Bowie through a cinema speaker is incredible. Never, I guess, like David Bowie does pop up in films from time to time, but. Never have we had so many Bowie tracks in one film and it's this wonderful piece in you know, this rich sort of patchwork tapestry of Bowie and Bowie's life and and his music and his career and where he was when he did certain songs. And anyway, it's, it's quite a hard film to describe. I think the best thing to do is to just go in and, and let it wash over you and be immersed in this incredible soundscape and the visuals also stunning. The film is directed by Brett Morgan, who a couple of years ago made a film called Kurt Cobain Montage of Heck, uh, all about Kurt Cobain. So he's got form with musicians and their life and work, but I think this one takes it to a whole new level. And when Brett Morgan was in town a couple of weeks ago for the UK premiere of Moonish Daydream, he stopped by Podcast Towers and we had a nice chat. So... This is a special episode all about Moon Age Daydream with the film's director, Brett Morgan. The film is in cinemas now. Check out showtimes at picturehouses.com and enjoy, enjoy Moonage Daydream. It is a film that has to be seen on the big screen. Are you there, David? You're aware of a deeper existence. Are you there, David? Are you there, David? Maybe a temporary reassurance that, indeed, there is no beginning, no end. And you find yourself struggling to comprehend a deep mystery. Hello Brett, welcome to the Pitch House podcast. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: It's uh, lovely to be in this room. There's, a, there's a, a, a buffet behind you. Lots of just sandwiches and little triangles. You're, you're uh, it's a beautiful welcome. image. You're welcome to. I mean, uh, I will take, put those in my bag yeah. at the end of this. Um, it's really nice to have you on the show. Um, listeners who've been listening for a while will remember a few years ago, we reviewed Montage of Heck, your previous film. I think 2015, maybe?
1: 2015, yeah.
0: Um, and we played at a pitch house for a really long time. So it's, it's great for you to have a new film out in cinemas, similarly about a musical icon now. Yeah, thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened maybe after Montage of Heck and and how Moon Age Daydream came to to be?
1: Well, if anyone happened to see Montage of Heck in your theater and then they saw it at home, they would understand that it is a totally different experience in a theater than at home because of the sound design. Mm. Um, The sound design components in my films are as critical as the picture. I like to think that I write my films four times. I write them before I hit the edit room, I'm writing a little bit in the edit room, not as much, and I am definitely writing in the color room, in the, in the color corrections, and in the, in the, in the sound design, and, and, and writing, coming up with new ideas, and, 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 and my sound design is never fully, it's never, it's, it's generally abstract and psychological, and, and so it requires a tremendous amount of spotting sessions john and nina who are the sound designers on moon age who did bohemian rhapsody won the oscar for that probably two of the most talented artists uh working in the uk told me that our spotting sessions on moon age were longer by a measure of like four or five times than anything they had ever experienced in their lives wow. we did i think 27 hours nine sessions Going, going, he's John reminded me the other night that the first session we did was three hours and we got two minutes into the film. Wow! Um, <laughs> so, you know, people talk about how they see films, I hear films. Mm. And when we were mixing moon age, Paul, who's an absolute genius. I mean, I would compare him. It, it, he's, he's to me in sound what, you know, Kubrick is in pictures. I mean, he's just, he's, he's absolute genius, you know, his entire career he has been orientating everything from the front of the room. Not Paul, every sound mixer. Everybody who has ever mixed a film Mm. for for a Hollywood studio or for pretty much any film, the front, where the print screen is, is where the sound comes from, and everything else is in support of that. Mm. And I was very interested, after Montage of Heck, in creating a purely immersive musical experience, void of narrative, void of biography, void of facts and information and data and all the stuff you can read in a book. Um, I wanted to make a uh, make films that were everything but almost like a theme park ride mm-hmm. you know where you just sort of get to appreciate that we're looking at this really um, you know pristine images that we've only seen on YouTube for years and we're hearing it like we've never heard it before, like wrapped around our heads. That was the original, Intense. So it was coming after Montage of Heck. I was like, I, I don't know if there's anywhere else for me to go in the biographical musical doc space. Mm-hmm. So let's go off on this adventure. Bowie passed away in um, right when I was getting started. And and uh, shortly thereafter, I reached out to his executor and explained to him that I was interested in creating this non-biographical musical experience. And I, I David had been saving things his entire life and for the past twenty five years had been collecting things at auctions anonymously working with an archivist but he had no interest in participating in a kind of traditional documentary about David Jones. Mm. And so I come up and uh, present my take to Bill and he said, This is great. It's a little too early. Mm-hmm. Watch Call Me Next Year. And um, and when we eventually came back came back to each other the only rule that he established was he said to me we'll give you everything in the archive you will have final cut but here's here's the here's the covenant david is not here to authorize or approve your work so it's never going to be david bowie on david bowie Mm. it's brett morgan on david bowie it's one artist's interpretation of another artist and There were one or two occasions where I reached out to Bill who was, you know, as close to David as, as anyone outside of his family, um, with him for 40 years. It was the man he trusted to run his estate. Mm. And so just because of his access to Bowie, I would say, Bill, I gotta ask you something, I can either do this or this, what do you think, you know, I, you know, what would David do? What do you think I should do? And Bill would go, well, that's your problem. He <laughs> mm. did not want to contribute mm. one iota to because of what he initially said mm. to me. So I was in this um, very, uh, I found myself in this incredible position where I was uh, had the keys to the Bowie vault to create this immersive musical experience. And if that's all it was, I would have been satiated. And right as I was getting going, I had a massive heart attack. And uh, flatlined for th- close two to three minutes. I was I my, I wasn't I didn't have my clock out at the time, but uh, <laughs> and I was in a coma for a week. And the first thing I said when I came out of the coma to the surgeon, it was on a Saturday. Uh, I said, uh, I said, um, what day is it? And they said Saturday. I go, I have to be on set on Monday. And he looked at me, and goes, You're not going anywhere on Monday. You just you, you just had a heart attack, man. We barely. You know, you are lucky to be here. You're you, you got a long road to recovery. I was like, no, I don't think you understand. I'm directing a very important pilot called runaways. I, I, I need to leave here. Two days later, I pulled the plugs out mm. and went on a scout. And two weeks after that, I was shooting the, the pilot. I was out of control. I was totally out of control. And if I had not had the Bowie film, there's a very good chance. I probably would be dead by now. I completed that pilot Mm. and, um, we brought all the Bowie archives into my office. And it was from that vantage point that I started listening to his interviews and not always been a fan of his music. I'd never really gone to YouTube to listen to his interviews. I don't really do If I like someone's music, that that's enough for me. Mm. I don't really need to hear them beyond that. And, um, so. Everything that I encountered, it took two years to screen through all the material. Wow! It was, everything was illuminating, revealing, exciting, inspiring. And what probably was the most for me, and not for Bowie fans, hardcore Bowie fans, but for me was his philosophy mm. and his approach to both art and life, which were so well synchronized. Uh, you know, Bowie understood and appreciated the brevity of our time on earth and wanted to make each day an adventure, whether in the mind or an external adventure. And um, I think what I had perceived before I started investigating Bowie was that, you know, maybe changes frequently because he's trying to stay ahead to sell more albums. And in fact, what I ultimately, sort of concluded, was the last consideration for Bowie was the audience. Mm. That the, that it was always about satisfying his own creative niche, except for the 80s. And in the 80s, he lost the script and started playing, trying to play to the crowds and give them what they want. And that idea of that level of appreciating the limited time we have here, both affected how he made art and how he lived his life. And, Going back to where this all started with doing a non-biographical film, there have been so many books written about Bowie. There have been so many documentaries about Bowie. I love the BBC's five year series. I think it's masterclass in documentary filmmaking, Hmm. but I'm not really a documentary filmmaker in that sense. I'm not a journalist. Um, If you come to this film looking for a biography, if you're coming to this film looking for anything that you might find on Wikipedia, Mm. you're going to be really disappointed and you're probably going to be pulling your hair out and go, wow, God, they didn't even mention Lou Reed. Um, But, you know, David wasn't about that. David wasn't about unearthing the mystery. He was about creating the mystery. He was about the enigma or to me it was, I'm saying this as if it's like one thing. This is just my Bowie, mm-hmm. was a uh, was bathed in mystery, and that's kind of what seduced me. And one of the things that when you work in those areas of gray is you're inviting the audience to participate, and you're inviting them to engage and to kind of project and to conjure up, to fill in the, the, the blanks. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why when I listen to David Bowie's music, I have a deeper understanding of myself far more than I'm getting David Jones.
0: Let's go somewhere new. See worlds we've never seen before so that we can feel inspired. Whether you're sitting in a cinema or in one of our cars, inspiration comes when we feel something new. That's why our electrified range is designed to take you on inspiring journeys. Kia, proud supporter of independent cinema. Kia, movement that inspires. I think that's the, the joy of Bowie, isn't it? Like, he's, he's had so many, he's been with us in so many forms over the years. And, and I think coming to the cinema and watching a film with people is great because everybody in the audience has kind of come with their own baggage. And they're gonna all have different conversations in the foyer on the way home, you know, and what B- Bowie was to them and what they saw in the film. And that was what I saw at my screening anyway. You know, people were picking up on certain elements and, and they had their own sort of moments. And I think you said earlier, it's a bit like a ride. It is totally like a ride. You know, this is, a, it's an odyssey.
1: I just had a journalist tell me that he, an hour and a half, he goes, <laughs> I don't know if you're gonna be, take this as a compliment or an insult, but an hour and a half into the film, I wanted to leave because I wanted to go to work because I was so inspired. Wow! And I was like, actually, I find that a bit insulting. Why, <laughs> why wouldn't you stay to the end? He goes, my cup had, I, I was like, were you bored? He goes, not at all. Wasn't that <laughs> I had, I had, was already so pumped mm-hmm. and I said, you know, that's interesting because that was your takeaway. Uh, last journalist I spoke to told me that they got out of the film and they immediately booked a trip to Argentina. Wow. That they just were like, my life's short. I don't know when it's going to end. I need an adventure. And I think that, yeah, the film is going to impact everyone differently. I The only thing I ask of the viewers is that you come to the movie understanding that you're not going to get a traditional biography. It's a different type of film. You know, genre is so important, right? Mm-hmm. If you go see um, what's the next horror film coming out,
0: Like a a conjuring or a. All right, let's just say the Exorcist.
1: Well, the Exorcist and the Shining are both kind of funny, but Mm. um, so maybe those aren't good examples. Um, Actually, the Shining. When I studied the Shining in high school, my teacher introduced it to us as a comedy. Wow. And that was, and he walked us through how he, in his mind, Kubrick presented it as a comedy. Well, when I saw the Shining as an 11-year-old, it was definitely in the horror genre, and I was terrified. But after my teacher presented it as a comedy, that film doesn't scare me anymore. I, I think it's really funny. So genre is so important in terms of managing our expectations. Moon Age Daydream does not exist in a genre. Mm. You can't, if you critique it or review it as a documentary, then that suggests that there's gonna be information exchange and you're gonna learn something about mm. the subject. My goal is not to educate. I'm not here to educate or inform. I'm I'm an impressionist. Mm. I I'm, I'm I want to uh, just have you sort of walk into an immersive gallery and you draw your own conclusions.
0: I think it is a like it is it's an immersive piece, isn't it? And uh, and I I think that's what I was surprised by. Uh, I'm standing you know? up, no, I, and I, you can
1: I, see I'm standing up. You know why I'm standing up because you're from Picture House. You are a minister, okay. <laughs> because cinema is our church, okay? And I'm gonna tell you that what I tried to do with this film was take everything that I loved about the opening of Apocalypse Now, everything that I love about cinema, when the seats vibrate, when my brain is, when I'm like in some sort of dizzying, dazzling, sublime dream. I love Natural Born Killers and JFK. I don't like the scripts. Well, I, 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 no, I shouldn't say that. I'm far more interested in the form because it's such like textural cinema. You know, I'm mainly interested in what, if you can get it in a book, I don't really want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to kind of, it's like making wine and extracting the juice from the grape. Mm-hmm. So if you're a fan of cinema, I'm a cinephile. I made this film for you. Whether you're a fan of Bowie or not, that's incidental mm-hmm. to me, in an, in, to a certain extent. I shouldn't say that at all. Um, I'm going to get buried for that line. <laughs> but let, let me be clear. I entered this project as a cinephile. Mm-hmm. And I, I leave the project as a cinephile and a lifelong Bowie fan. But, you know, uh, this to me was a filmic exercise mm-hmm. and a filmic adventure and an adventure that I think, given the fact that I, I had to do everything myself, and had no staff, I had to do my own research, I had to do my own editing, I had Mm. to do my own producing, meant that I was way in over my head and had to really kind of dig my way out or feel my way out of a labyrinth blindfolded. Mm. And I think to that extent, I probably set up the right situation to try to access Bowie. I listened to everything he said about his process through the years, and I try to incorporate as many of his techniques as possible. This idea uh, that there are no mistakes, there's just happy accidents, really resonated with me editorially, Mm. in terms of like, I would slop something out, and there'd be something that I didn't intend to be there, but I would look and be like, oh, that's that works. And when another editor would do it and show it to me, I'd be like, dude, that's totally random. And they'd be like, well, what's that thing you just showed me? And I'd be like, well, that makes sense to me. I don't know what this thing is you're doing. So I had to cut it by myself. I'm not an editor. I'm, I'm, I'm like a, a – a, a, I, I know nothing about the technical components of editing. And I, it needed that sort of orientation because what Bowie teaches us is that virtuosity is overrated. And in fact, I'm going to be the first to tell you that the film is flawed. And I can – point out you could probably point out several flaws i will point out to some major flaws this is a film that is not supposed to be biographical and yet there are a couple biographical components what does that mean well if there is no biographical components then there's not one person in the world who's ever going to say to me where's lou reed Hmm. but once you introduce one person then it begs the question Mm. And I had this, I wanted to get into this backstory for a beat of David's parents because he spends so much time as an artist talking about isolation, and alienation. I wanted to provide some window into where that might've been rooted in. And I knew I was, I was breaking my own covenant and I was traumatized and I tried everything I could to avoid it. And then finally I just said, it makes it a better film. Mm. It may not make it as cohesive. It may invite some certain criticism, but I, there's no such thing as a perfect film. So when art isn't supposed to be perfect, it's supposed to be imperfect, you know, reflect life. So that, that was, you know, it was very kind of Bowie-esque in in so many ways in terms of the, um, the methodology. And I think that's why perhaps those who are closest to him have relayed to me that this, you know, captures David in a way that they've Mm -hmm. never seen before and i think it's because it employed a lot of his kind of techniques and sensibilities
0: i think i think so i think what's nice about it you can see your fingerprint on this film and it's a personal expression but it uses every tool in the box as a you know a, a film that should be seen in cinemas uh, and i just really loved that i got such a kick of sitting there in an auditorium playing loud seeing this amazing picture on big screen whether it was archive or new footage or you know uh, everything in between that you use then yeah it's just it's a big cinematic film so we're grateful for that and we're grateful you made the film thanks so much brett we're looking forward to playing the movie at picture house oh yeah, <laughs> thank you
1: so much thank you